Section 34 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 16, Peace Negotiations, Part 1. The campaign of 1710 was full of disappointment to Marlborough. He had hoped to carry the war into the heart of France, but after Douai fell, Villars so placed his army that it was impossible either to attack him or to besiege Arras, as Marlborough had intended. He was obliged to content himself with the capture of Bethune, Saint-Venant, and Aire. Heavy rains and a great deal of illness among his troops prevented further operations. Besides this, his energy was somewhat paralyzed by the changes which had taken place in England. He felt that if he failed in anything now, he would meet with the severest censure, and on this account an expedition which he had planned at the beginning of the campaign against Calais and Boulogne were given up as being too hazardous. In the uncertainty of his position, Marlborough thought once more of the offer which in former days had been repeatedly made to him by the Emperor and the Archduke Charles, and he wrote to Charles asking whether he would now make him governor of the Spanish Netherlands. Charles managed to evade his request by saying that he would be willing to do so if it were agreeable to the Dutch. This was the same as a refusal, for the Dutch had always objected strongly to the proposal. When the Duke went to The Hague at the close of the campaign, he was entreated by all the representatives of the Allies to continue in his command. If he was out of favor at home, at least the foreign powers recognized his importance as the one man who could keep the alliance together. But the English Parliament, which met at the end of November 1710, had for the first time omitted to pass a vote of thanks to him, though a public thanksgiving had been held for the successes in Flanders. When a vote of thanks was moved by Scarborough in the House of Lords, where the Whigs had a majority, the government managed to have the question dropped, and St. John wrote, One would imagine that Lord Scarborough was hired by somebody who wished the Duke of Marlborough ill to take so unconcerted and so ridiculous a measure. The people, however, had not yet lost their admiration for the great Duke. When he reached London in December on his return from The Hague, they crowded round his carriage with enthusiastic shouts. Anxious to avoid an uproar which he knew would tell against him with the government, instead of going straight to St. James as he had intended, he turned aside to Montague House and waited there till the crowd had dispersed and he could go unobserved to the Queen. She received him with embarrassment and talked of the weather. From the first he was made to feel how entirely his position had changed. The man who but a short while before had been consulted on the smallest trifle and courted by everybody was now treated with coolness and reserve by the Queen and the ministers alike. Another blow was preparing for him. Harley and St. John were only waiting to be convinced that the Duke would keep his command, whatever happened, before they recommended the Queen to dismiss the Duchess from all her offices. Anne was eager to do so. She had been still more angered against her former friend because the Duchess had threatened to publish her letters, and she had also used Sir David Hamilton, one of the Queen's physicians who owed his place to her favour, as a means of sending continual messages to the Queen 
justifying herself against the accusations made against her and demanding a return to her former favour the duchess was much enraged by a number of the examiner which appeared on november twenty third seventeen ten in which swift ridiculing those who spoke of the ingratitude shown to the duke of marlborough drew up for comparison the two following bills a bill of roman gratitude imprimatur for frankincense and earth and pots to burn it in four pounds ten shillings a bull for sacrifice eight pounds an embroidered garment fifty pounds a crown of laurel twopence a statue one hundred pounds a trophy eighty pounds a thousand copper medals value halfpence apiece two pounds one shilling eightpence a triumphal arch five hundred pounds a triumphal car valued as a modern coach one hundred pounds casual charges at the triumph one hundred and fifty pounds total charges nine hundred and ninety four pounds eleven shillings ten pence a bill of british ingratitude imprimatur woodstock forty thousand pounds blenheim two hundred thousand pounds post office grant one hundred thousand pounds mindelheim thirty thousand pounds pictures jewels and etc sixty thousand pounds pall mall grant and etc ten thousand pounds employments one hundred thousand pounds total charges five hundred and forty thousand pounds neither did swift spare the duchess but insinuated that as mistress of the robe she had purloined in eight years twenty two thousand pounds the duchess in her indignation drew up a vindication for herself which she sent to the queen who after reading it fully justified the duchess from the charges brought against her by remarking every one knows that cheating is not the duchess of marlborough's fault the thought of the probable disgrace of his wife caused the duke much agitation he was ill and harassed and made the duchess so anxious that she wrote a very humble letter to the queen promising never to do anything that could be disagreeable to her the duke went to present it himself to the queen hoping by its means and by his own entreaties to soften anne's resolution he had some difficulty in persuading the queen even to read the letter and when at last she did so she only said i cannot change my resolution then the duke exerted all his eloquence to move the queen for a long while he pleaded but anne when she had once made up her mind to anything had all the obstinacy of her family she only answered by insisting that the golden key the badge of the duchess's office should be brought to her in three days then the duke so far forgot his dignity as to throw himself on his knees and beg for a respite even of ten days but anne answered more shortly than before this time saying that she must have the key in two days the duke saw it was of no use he rose from his knees and began to speak of another indignity which he had suffered by the punishment of three officers for no other crime than drinking his health with some expressions of opprobrium for the existing ministers but the queen interrupted him saying i will talk of no other business till i have the key with melancholy feelings he told the duchess the queen's decision the duchess passionately tore the key from her girdle and flung it into the middle of the room 
bidding him pick it up and carry it to whom he pleased. The Duke took it to the Queen that very evening. The Duchess's offices were soon disposed of to the Queen's new favourites. Mrs. Masham became keeper of the privy purse, but she did not reign without a rival, for the more important office of groom of the stole was given to the Duchess of Somerset, who was gaining great favour with the Queen. The Duchess of Marlborough determined to revenge herself as far as possible. In former days, when Anne's fondness for her knew no bounds, she had begged her to take, in addition to her other salaries, a pension of two thousand a year from the privy purse. This, for some reason or other, the Duchess never drew, but she now determined to claim it, and to demand also the arrears for the past nine years. This she did when she sent in her accounts to the Queen, and Anne ordered the sum to be paid. Some months after, the Duchess was told to give up her apartments in St. James's Palace, as the Queen had need of them. In petty spite, she ordered, when her furniture was to be removed, the brass locks which she had put on the doors to be torn off, and the marble chimney-pieces to be pulled down. The Duke, who was then in Holland, was by no means pleased when he heard of these orders and wrote to her begging her not to remove the chimney-pieces. He was in time to save them, but the brass locks were torn off, and the Queen, who heard of the orders the Duchess had given, was most indignant, and said, referring to the building at Blenheim, that she would build no house for the Duke of Marlborough when the Duchess had pulled hers to pieces. The Duke did not resign as he had threatened to do when the Duchess was dismissed. It would have been better for his dignity had he shown more firmness at this time. As it was, he acted exactly as Harley wished him to act, for it would not have suited Harley's plans had he then resigned. The ministers were delighted to find that the Duke would bear any humiliations they chose to heap upon him. Even Swift thought they pressed him a little too hard, for he was wise enough to see that they let personal quarrels mingle too much with their proceedings. Ever since Harley came into office, his great object had been to bring the war to an end. The Tories had accused their opponents of needlessly prolonging the war for their own interests, and had always declared themselves in favour of peace. It would not, therefore, do for them to continue the war when they were in power. At the same time, nothing could be done suddenly. The people were proud of the military glory won by English arms. If any of the acts of the new government tended to diminish it, they might easily take back their allegiance to the Whigs, under whose rule such great things had been done. Harley's first care, therefore, was to show what great faults the Whigs had committed, even in the management of the war and of financial matters. In the campaign of 1710, affairs in Spain had at first gone greatly in favour of the Allies, and Charles had once more occupied Madrid. But he found it a desert, for the inhabitants had either shut themselves in their houses or followed their beloved Philip. Adversity gave Philip new strength. The Spaniards gathered round him. Louis the Fourteenth sent him Vendôme to command his forces. It was impossible for the Allies to remain in Castile, and by the end of the campaign they had lost nearly all they had gained, and had moreover learnt the hopelessness of trying to drive Philip from Castile, where he had gained so firm a hold upon the affections of the people. The English generals in Spain were Whigs, 
it was determined therefore to hold a parliamentary inquiry into the causes of the failure of the war in spain and to bring out in contrast to the failure of the whigs the successes of lord peterborough whose cause the tories had made their own galway maimed and scarred with the wounds which he had received in the war was called before the peers to be examined he had been unsuccessful as a general but the many wounds which he had received showed at least he was not deficient in personal bravery the whig lords spoke in his favour and marlborough said it is somewhat strange that generals who had acted to the best of their understanding and had lost their limbs in the service should be examined like offenders about insignificant things but he produced no effect and the end of the proceedings was a vote of censure on galway and a vote of thanks to peterborough meanwhile swift and the other tory pamphleteers were continuing the work of reviling marlborough and destroying his popularity he felt this deeply and speaks of it in his letters to his wife as this villainous way of printing which stabs me to the heart he disliked the whole method of fighting party battles through the press and writes i do not love to see my name in print for i am persuaded that an honest man must be fortified by his own actions and not by the pen of a writer though he should be a zealous friend another way in which his loss of favour was shown was the difficulty of obtaining the necessary payments for the continuation of the works at blenheim when the palace had first been projected as the gift of a grateful nation to their great general anne had taken such an interest in it that she had caused a model of the building to be placed in kensington palace now it was difficult to get the necessary money out of the government to pay the workmen and an attempt had even been made to make the duke pay them himself but the duchess was too clever to suffer this and preferred that the works should remain unfinished rather than that they should take the cost of them upon themselves things altogether were so unpleasant that the duke was eager to get away from england as quickly as possible and he returned to his army in february harley's own position at this time was not very satisfactory he had pleased nobody entirely his design of co-operating with the whigs had failed and he had proved unwilling to adopt the decisive measures which would have satisfied the extreme tories they had formed themselves into a club called the october club in which they discussed the measures to be pursued they objected to harley for his moderation and his undecided mysterious ways and considered him unfit to be the leader of their party he himself was without anxiety and distracted his friends by his easy-going ways and apparent indifference a fortunate accident however restored his popularity a french refugee the marquis of guiscard was discovered to be engaged in a treasonable correspondence with france he was brought before the privy council to be examined and then in a desperate desire for revenge stabbed harley with a penknife st john and some others attacked him with their swords and secured him after wounding him severely harley's wound was not dangerous but it was bad enough for his friends to make a great talk about it swift was in despair and wrote to stella my heart is almost broken in reality nothing more fortunate could have happened to harley he appeared to the people as a sufferer for the cause of the nation and became at once the object of the most enthusiastic popularity he was raised to the peerage as earl of oxford and soon after made lord treasurer 
at the same time he was relieved from the presence of a dangerous rival by the death of the queen's uncle the earl of rochester who had great influence among the tories and he seemed for the time supreme he busied himself with playing the sort of double game in which he most delighted whilst secretly engaged in negotiations with louis the fourteenth he wrote friendly letters to marlborough assuring him of his support and of his anxiety in prosecuting the war End of section thirty four